0: Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Many syndicators favor the reliability of Class B properties because of their performance in all economic cycles. When the economy turns, Class A tenants move down to Class B, but Class B tenants mostly stay put. Although the properties are older, they're still relatively current and nice places to live, especially after value-add upgrades have been made. Today's guest, Ellie Perlman, founder and CEO of Blue Lake Capital, has built a great portfolio of B-Class properties in great markets. So today we have with us a lady, I will say a young lady and, you know, compared to me, she's definitely young, but so are most ladies. But she has like a super, super, super interesting story, even before the real estate that I want to ask about. But she is the founder and owner of Blue Lake Capital. She is a Forbes author. She is a podcaster. She has other things that we'll uncover. Ellie Perlman, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Hey, Roger Becker. Great to be here. And thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, you got it. And, and how did you like my, you know, Mr. Radio-ish announcer intro?
1: <laughs> I love it, actually. Most um, interviews are done uh, in, in the Zoom era. They're a bit different. So that works for me.
0: Okay. So I am just right out of the gate. I'm fascinated that you're uh, a a Sabra, I'm assuming, but maybe you're not. I, I just assumed you were born in Israel because I know you're from Israel, but that doesn't mean you were born there. Were you?
1: Oh, well, yeah. From former Israel, I was definitely born there and raised in Israel. Um, very ultra Orthodox, you know, family, very different values than how I live my life today. Uh, but yeah, I was born in Israel in kind of a small um, settlement, uh, remote from most, you know, cities. And I think when I moved there, I think I was like two or three years old. We didn't even have a paved road. So a little rough.
0: So you say move there when you were two or three from another part of Israel or.
1: Yeah. From another part of Israel and my parents didn't have money. Um, and so the the government basically there was, um, kind of a lottery. And if you won the lottery, you could buy the house at a really you know funny price and so it was it was um you know a decision for them to move there just based on the fact that they it, it was almost the only thing they could afford
0: so was this like west bank
1: uh yes mm-hmm.
0: wow uh is it a town any would have heard of like me for example
1: Uh, no probably only if you live there it's still very small i think they only got the the, the first there's no bakery or anything like that, but I think they got um their first uh supermarket maybe two years ago. So very wow. small place. Yeah. I think there were 30, 35 families when I moved there.
0: That is a trip. And so and where are your folks from?
1: Um they were born in Israel, um in you know, other cities in Israel and um found themselves in in that um, specific place that was called Netafim. but yeah, it was pretty remote from everything else, uh, and you had to have a car to get in and out. Obviously, um, not the safest place, um, you know. I Have to say, and so um, growing up, I always had you know soldiers around us, people, you know, neighbors walking with uh, with guns for protection. It was it was pretty pretty rough. Uh, and, and I think this is where I kind of looked around me and I said, you know what? I, I, I want something different. I don't, I don't want this. I don't want to be kind of in a war zone. I want to leave in peace and I want to be with, you know, I want to be in a place that I don't have to worry about my safety. And that was how I think I started to see the world through those eyes. And, you know, in, in our little settlement, we were the poorest family and we used to get. Um, boxes every holiday with food and clothes that the neighbors basically that they were donating to my parents if you want to think about the low the lowest possible place at least from my point of view through you know a a 9 10 11 year old kid that that was it that was my uh beginning
0: if you were ultra orthodox were you one of like several siblings
1: Yeah, I'm uh, basically the oldest of um, four, and we're kind of a small family compared to the average, I think, um, ultra-Orthodox family, probably six or seven kids on average. But yeah, I was the oldest. I still am. I am the oldest.
0: You are. And and were were your folks, and I, I will eventually end these questions, but I'm just really curious, were they Sephardic Ashkenaz or where'd they come from, your ancestors?
1: Um, my grandparents actually came from Yemen. They were Jews, obviously, um, and they migrated. I don't even know when back in the 40s or something like or the 30s. I'm not even sure Um, they migrated to Israel. And so my parents were born in Israel.
0: I see. You guys were Sephardic. I think the Sephardic in general were more religious, if if my history is correct. So um, what a trip. When did you leave? And, and I know, I think you went to, I could be wrong, because I didn't read the whole thing. I listened to a podcast years. yours. Didn't you go to Harvard or no?
1: I went to MIT.
0: MIT, better yet. Okay, so, and what was your path, I guess, out of this West Bank? settlement where you were scared for your life
1: well when i was 19 years old um i got married i was very religious at the time and it was very acceptable to get married when you're 18 19 years old once i once i got married i was basically i was forced to work in two sometimes three jobs to pay you know for bills and for rent I didn't have any education, so obviously all the jobs that I could land, they were paying minimum wage. And at some point I said, you know, this is not the way. And I started, you know, working really hard to get into law school in Israel, and I got to, um, I was accepted to a really good law school. And um, I worked really hard working to pay for college and also um, getting, it was a full-time, the school was kind of full-time, there was no evening you know, studies. So I got two degrees in four years. So bachelor and master's in law um, in, in four years. And I started working at a law firm and I was fascinated by real estate back then because I was part of the international real estate department and I was working on great projects that I I could never really understand how my clients are buying million buildings. These amounts seem so unreal to me. You know, back then I was making not even 12, maybe $15,000 a year. These are very entry-level salaries in Israel. And after a while, I realized that I wasn't happy as as a lawyer. I started to develop this eye disease and nobody knew where it came from. And I almost lost my eyesight in one eye. And that made me Take a pause and take things in perspective. And so when you're dealing with something that um, with a disease that looks scary and you go through it, other things that you thought were scary before you had the disease are not scary at all because you get perspective. And I, I told myself, you're not happy as a lawyer. you see all the deals, you know, the deals are interesting but you, you. it's not for you. Don't be afraid. Just quit, just do something else. And that was the best decision that I've made. Um, because that allowed me to basically switch to property management do it for four years. And then I realized that I wanted to take the next step and learn um, more about how to start a business and what other place in the world is better than, you know, MIT to teach you how to become a better entrepreneur, how to raise money, how to start companies and how to run budgets. And that's what I did. I joined MIT and... It was a very, very humbling experience because you're, you know, I always used to be the, you know, A student in high school, in, in college, and all of a sudden everyone is an A student and they're such smart people, really geniuses sitting next to me. And so not so long after graduating from MIT, where I got my MBA deg- degree, I started Blue Capital and started to purchase multifamily assets and basically came full circle because I basically transitioned from a lawyer to the cl- my clients at the time which is what i wanted to be
0: when when you were doing the property management was that in israel or was that in the us
1: that was still in israel so i i left everything and moved to the us that was march of 2014
0: and that was to go to mit
1: yes i arrived directly from tel aviv to cambridge
0: how is your English so fluent?
1: You know, um, from a very young age, I think it was 11 when I made the decision to live in America. Um, I I remember learning um, later on, you know, uh, the whole concept of the self-made men was so fascinating to me. And the, the idea that if you work hard, you can make it. I just didn't see this opportunity, you know, in Israel. And I was always fascinated by it. And I've just, I, just, you know, back then, pretty early on, I've decided that I'm going to be in the States. I'm going to be successful. I'm not going to be poor like I am today. I'm going to be in a safe place. Um, and I'm never going to have to worry about paying my bills. And so I actually started immersing myself in, you know, um, English studies and kind of making sure that I have, that that is not going to be an obstacle once I'm ready to move on. And I also think, to be honest with you, that that was, you know, languages is one of my, um, my strengths. So it, it was, it wasn't painful to be, to become fluent. I have other areas of weaknesses in languages, just not one of them.
0: I understand. did your, uh, so are your, were your folks supportive of, of these choices that you made?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. I think, I don't think my parents really took me seriously when I was, you know, 12 years old. And I said, I'm going to live in America one day, I'm going to be very successful. They they did teach me to be be very self-sufficient, not to be dependent on anyone. Um, always tell me you can do whatever you want, you know, whatever you put your mind to, you can achieve it. And that was an in a very important part of my success, I believe. On the religious, you know, on that part, I think they they wish that I would stay. You know, religious because they're they are very religious. But when it comes to leaving to the U.S., I think they've made peace with it. They're happy that that I'm happy. You know, they wish that I would be married and have uh, you know six, seven kids, and it's important for them to that I would be self sufficient. But I don't think they intended to to create you know this really hungry, motivated self starter you know person. But it it just happened this way. So I think for the most part they are supportive of me. I want to believe that. Let's let's
0: hope. So it sounds like they are, because I have a feeling if they weren't, you you would know it. But that's a that's another that's for another podcast. So <laughs> so uh, I told you before we started, I I I asked the questions. So how do you get like how did you crack the nut of of multifamily? you know, coming out with an MBA and in, in what has the trajectory been? Like where where did you go after uh, MIT in, in terms of like like what location did you move to and you know what what did all that look like?
1: So MIT really has um they have a really good real estate school that I don't know many know about. So just taking classes there, real estate negotiation and underwriting, you know, that that was very helpful. And after graduation, I actually moved to California. I wanted to be where the sun was. And California was the obvious decision for me. I worked for about a year at a tech company and I worked in the business operations uh, team. So I was searching for weak processes and coming up with plans to improve the business process and also work with the teams to implement it. Unfortunately, the company was not doing very well at some point and I found myself needing to look for another job. And as I was looking for another job, I realized that if I if I wanted someone to evaluate my skills and write me a check, I prefer it wouldn't be an employer. I prefer it would be an investor. And I wanted to start working with investors and start you know learning about real estate and a little bit more in understanding the local market. Um, and I did a lot of research and my conclusion was that syndication was something that would probably help me scale my business much faster than buying one house after another or flip one house after another and it was not without a challenge because i I didn't have an extensive network um you know besides my you know my husband's family and people who went to school with me that were not really in the right position right after graduation for the most part to become investors. They had, you know, student debt and and they were just starting to work, you know, for six figures, um, salary. So it took some time to build it, but I um, you know, I hired a good team to help me um, you know, build a thought leadership platform to attract investors, um, to underwrite deals, to manage the assets, and I treated it like like a startup, like I I was taught on how, you know, back at MIT, I was taught how to build, you know, how to hire people and how to build a startup, a company. And basically Blue Lake, you know, was created as a startup when we, when we just, you know, started.
0: So starting out, uh, how did you have, I mean, prior to, how did you have the money to hire these people?
1: I took loans like any, you know, business owner. I took loans to pay, you know, for my business. And I I said, listen, if I don't believe in myself, why would investors believe in my abilities to manage the assets? And, you know, I returned all the loans a while ago. You know, I'm debt-free, but there were a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of 20-hour, you know, 17-hour, you know, uh, work days. And you do, once you're committed and you love what you do and you're passionate about it, it doesn't feel like a chore. It's not actually hard if you really, really want it.
0: So were these personal loans? Because I can't imagine you got a bank to lend you money, right? With with no track record and for a business like that.
1: Yeah, I found a way. But you, you also have to understand that um, it's not that I didn't have any track record. I was paying student loans. I had credit cards. I built my, my credit score once because once you come to the States, if you rent a car, if you know, if you have a loan that you're paying, you're building your credit score um, one step after another. So it wasn't impossible. It wasn't impossible. It wasn't like I was I just arrived and within a week um, of moving to the states, I was going to take you know business loans. But for other young, you know, insp- aspiring uh, syndicators and business owners out there, if you're not in a position to take a loan from a bank. There's, there are other businessmen, friends and family, people that you can turn to to take loans. So the bank is not, it's often the, the best choice, but it, it doesn't have to be the only choice.
0: Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that. And so what was your first deal?
1: My first deal was um, actually a collaboration with someone that was more experienced than me at the time. And we were both competing on the deal and I lost the deal to him. And, uh, next thing I know, he called me and asked me if I wanted to partner on the deal. So I had to swallow my pride. And, um, that was also one of the best decisions that I've made because it opened the door for me for the next deal and the one after. And so many times in, many times in business, we have egos get in the way and it's a very destructive force. So I try to take ego out of the way, not to let it interfere in business or in any business decisions. And just look at the data, look at the facts, look at the numbers. And if it's a good deal, if the numbers work, then then that's what, what I should do. And that's how I, I've always looked at it this way. And so the first deal, I lost it, but then won it back. After that, it's it, it just it just snowballed from there. So I'm actually very grateful that I've done the first deal um, because if I said, you know, if if my ego was bruised and I would say, Hey, I lost a deal to you, why would I collaborate with you? You just took a deal from me. I, I don't know how many years would have passed until I would actually get the next deal. It's pretty competitive out there. It has been for the last, I would say seven to 10 years.
0: So, why did he ask you to collaborate? Uh, number one, and in, in what was your role in the in the deal? Which is probably the maybe part of the same answer.
1: Yeah, you have to understand that every businessman doesn't matter how experienced or inexperienced they are; they always need something. They always have some pain point, and if you can tap into that pain point and can help out, then this is something that you know you can always bring some value the question is are you the right person to bring the value because maybe what you can bring is not what this specific you know business owner or entrepreneur needs and it's hard to understand what they need because many of them are not going to tell you and you need to build relationships with them but i was i was able to find what is it that he actually needed and I was able to add value to him? And it was, it was a win-win. Cause I got my first deal, even though it wasn't a hundred percent, you know, mine. And he got something out of it because I helped him close the deal. Could he have done it without me? Yeah, probably. Absolutely. He would have found someone else or he would have hired someone to help him out. And I knew it. So there's always something that you that you can add in. Any in any investment, and today, you know, we're we're more established, obviously. So I have an entire team to do it. But when I just started out, I saw a lot of sponsors that were reaching out to other sponsors and saying, or a lot of individuals that wanted to get in in the multifamily game, and was they were basically asking, hey, what can I help you with? You know, an offering I can help calling the competition and making a, a you know an analysis for you on a quarterly or monthly or whatever basis, so you have more accurate information. I can help you underwrite deals. I can help you, you know, bring capital, whatever it is, you can find what you can bring to the table. um, And, you know, don't, don't think what in it, what's in it for you on day one, just focus on getting, getting the foot in the door and start building your track record.
0: So what, what is it that you found that he needed that you provided?
1: Well, I'm actually not at liberty to talk about the uh, the exact um, structure because I'm a, under an NDA, but I can tell you that you can always, always find something to bring to the table.
0: Okay. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Uh, well, don't accuse me of not listening closely. Okay. So, you know, I, on your website, it, it looks like you've done a lot of class B buildings. And I guess what I was going to ask you is what do you like about Class B and what is your opinion about the other asset classes?
1: What I love about Class B is that there's always demand for this asset class. And historically, it has done well over multiple cycles. And, you know, many people move from A to B if Class A is getting a little bit expensive for them. But move from class B, which is still, you know, maybe it's 20, 30 years old, but it's it still looks good. Maybe it's the interiors is, um, the interiors are renovated. To move from B to C, it's it's a harder move. Um, so most people when when the time is good, they move from C to B. When the economy is strong, they move to C to B. And when we're in a downturn, you see a lot of movement from A to B, but B tend to stick you know, harder. And of of course it's, it depends on the market. You have class B assets that are struggling. You have class B assets that are doing phenomenally during COVID. When it comes to other asset classes, class A is an interesting um, asset class because right now the gap between class B and class A, when it comes to yields, meaning cash on cash and IRR, this gap is getting narrower and sm- you know, smaller and smaller. Um, class C right now. I'm trying. I'm shying away from Class C, and I think that ten and five years ago, there was a, a strong demand for Class C um, because we've seen a lot of tenants move to Class C. Occupancy was high. Numbers on paper you know, we're high. And I believe that you saw the increase in demand for Class C because the 2007 downturn basically caused a lot of people to lose their homes. And if someone is unable to pay for, you know, their, their mortgage, at least back in 2007, we're talking about people who are not supposed to get a loan to begin with. So they're not making a lot of money. They're more on the low income side. They cannot lease after they lost their homes. They need, Place to stay, right? So, just trying to look for apartments. Class A is out of reach. Class B, it's a hit or miss. For the most part, it's also a bit higher. Those who lost their homes in the millions back in two thousand and seven, I would argue that most likely they went to Class C, and that's what fueled the demand back then. But at some point, you have to understand that with any downturn, and every downturn is different. But I thought that with the next downturn, in the next downturn, this asset class is going to suffer because we're talking about the weaker part of society and they don't necessarily have the means to pay um, the rent on. And, and that's what we're seeing right now during COVID. So um, if you look at the data, class B has the highest rent collection percentage uh, percent. I think it's 90 or 92% right now. Class A is right after, you know, trailing pretty closely. And there's a, significant gap between those numbers and, uh, class C, which I believe is a high 80%, mid to, to high 80%. So there's, there's a reason why we don't really buy class C. I do believe in class B and I believe in class A. And I think these two, you know, I think they make a really, really strong, um, investments right now. And, and also in, in the near future.
0: That's very interesting and very well said. So I, I, I guess what I'm what I'm translating into that as you're talking is that you still, even though you say Class A is trailing closely in terms of collections, there's still risk with the recession that those rents contract, that uh, vacancy increases, and it goes to B. And it, I, I, I guess in a way, I'm hearing that regardless up or down or otherwise class b is 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 maybe just more predictable and more stable that's kind of what i'm hearing so that's very interesting and how how are you financing your your projects these days
1: um so there are two options one is um it's basically freddie mac finnie Mae. um these are uh, the you know There's just agency financing. Um, It's becoming more challenging these days because they have a limit on the the LTV, the loan to value. And so you have to be creative when it comes to financing. The other part that we're looking at is um, private loans with uh, adjustable or agency debt with adjustable interest rates. And then you can basically buy a cap. So you don't go from 3% interest rate today to 7% interest rate in a year. So it's kind of buying an insurance on the how ha- on the how ha- you know how high your payments are going to go. But for the most part, these are the two main in- financing vehicles that we're looking at right now.
0: And are you doing bridge loans or
1: haven't done bridge loans as of today, haven't done bridge loans. And I think because cap rates have compressed and you know it's challenging to find deals. Sometimes that's what you need to do. We personally haven't done any bridge loans until today.
0: I probably missed something, but why? Why aren't you doing bridge loans?
1: If if a deal works with agency debt and I can get a fixed rate, you know, it, it's almost it's always better to get a rate that is fixed, so you know exactly how much you're paying, and whatever fluctuations in the market when it comes to interest rates and uh, and the bonds in general, it doesn't impact, you know, your investment. So two years ago, we got a deal at three or three and a half percent interest rate. It doesn't matter if today interest rate has gone up to 5% because we're still locked early. So this is an obvious advantage. However, because the real estate market is very competitive, if you stick only to agency debt, you can't really win deals because you're going to get overbid. Because others are using different, in, you know, um, financing vehicles. So you have to be you have to be adjustable. And as a business owner and an entrepreneur, you have to be able to look at what's happening in the market and adjust yourself accordingly. But then also think, okay, what can I do to basically mitigate the risk? So I'm not. I don't feel comfortable taking, you know, bridge loan without buying a cap. So if I get three percent now. I don't know what's going to happen a year from now. I may be paying double the interest rate and that can really put a strain on the business plan and and the performance of the property. But if you buy a cap, then you basically say, okay, I'm not going to pay more than 4% or th- or 3.8, whatever it is. And that allows you to project, to better project the maximum amount of interest rate that you're going to pay.
0: So so would you consider doing doing a bridge loan with a cap?
1: I prefer not to, but we may.
0: Okay. That's curious. Very 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 interesting. I, you I know, I I understand. How would you describe your your buying criterion philosophy at this point?
1: So we're looking basically at 50 to 150 million uh, in purchase price, mainly class B and class A um, in markets like Texas, Florida, Georgia, Arizona, the Carolinas. And so when it comes to class B, I like to see some value add. So any opportunity to improve the expenses, to improve the um, uh, the amenities and push expenses down and increase the income. When it comes to class A, the value add is going to be maybe to purchase a property, for instance, that um, isn't a lease up. So um, right now it's not 90% occupied, it's only 70% occupied. So because the NOI is lower, and you know purchase prices the cap rate equals NOI over purchase price. So when the NOI is low because it's only 70% occupied, then the purchase price is lower. So if you buy it at a 70% occupancy, you know you're gonna put a strong team that can push the income. Then within two, three, four months, you're back at 90, 95%. And now your property is worth a lot more then you can refinance um and basically you the value add is by leasing up the property faster than the buyer than the seller can do it
0: and i'm assuming zen that you're talking about buying it from the developer
1: hmm yep
0: why wouldn't they just you know continue leasing it up and get their noi up and sell it for more if they're at 70 percent
1: because many times they have construction loans that they have to repay and so they, their clock is ticking. They have to, you know, if they took a construction loan for two years, it took them a year and a half to build the, the property and six months to lease it. They don't have extensions. Extensions are either not available to them or they're very expensive. So they will have to basically sell the property so they can pay off the loan because they're on a the hook for the loan. And construction loans are pretty expensive because there's no... For the most part, there's no, you know, payments to the lender because as the property is being built, nobody's paying rent, so there's no income. So lenders are less forgiving when it comes to extending. You know, they will extend, but it will cost them a lot more money. So they, that's part of it. The other part is that many developers are not. They don't have the right team to start lease up and do it quickly and efficiently. Their bread and butter is building properties, not so much leasing them and managing the properties. And this is where, you know, when we come in and say, we'll take it from you. We know how to do it. We've done it before. This is our strength. I, I don't know, for instance, how to build a property from the grounds up. That's what they do best. And so each party is focused on what they do best. And together, it just makes a lot of sense
0: okay wow all right so i read another syndicator's email of which you know there's like a million of them newsletter uh newsletters the other day and the gist of what he said was that you know kind of what you were talking about too like cap rate compression there's not that much you know cuz of competition and there's so much money the gap is narrowed between a and c And so from an asset class perspective, from a market, he goes primary, secondary, tertiary markets, it's just all gotten just like, there's just no rock that's been unturned at this point. And just speaking to the competitive landscape. And I guess my question is like, how do you differentiate? How do you find the deals in this landscape? You know, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, keep on keeping on?
1: So, every sponsor is different, and every sponsor has different strengths. Um, the way that we're different is that we work a lot with family offices and institutional players. and so um, there's another, you know, on every deal, we have at least one of them investing investing with us. So in our investors, they know that there's a large group that has been looking at the deal, has vetting, has vetted us, has vetted the deal, under in the deal or whatever, you know, um, rigorous process that they take their deal through. Um, And it's very similar to an angel investor that invests with a large VC. So it's different when a a company approaches an angel investor and tells them, you know, here's the deck, we are looking for seed money. But it's different, you know, because then they have to do the analysis and the vetting themselves. But if an angel investor is investing with a company that um, is going with a VC, then you know that the VC has resources and expertise. And if they've vetted a the deal, then it's it's likely to be a decent deal because they, it's kind of a screening. There's a screening mechanism there. And so I think that's one of the things that I actually separate you know, separates us from uh, from competition um, is that we work with those large, you know, companies that are screening deals, they're screening, they're vetting sponsors. And so investors really like the fact that there's someone who has done the vetting work. And then in addition, many times, we are our biggest limited partner. So we, we're normally the either the biggest or the second biggest check writer after the institutional or family office.
0: Makes sense. Uh, a lot of sense. So how would one get a hold of Ellie Perlman?
1: Um, I think the easiest way is just to type Ellie Perlman on Google. Um, my website is ellieperlman.com. And you can you know shoot me an email through, you a know, message through um, the website. You can also email me, and Ellie is E-L-L-I-E, so you can email me to ellie at bluelake-capital.com or ellie at com. Any of those, um, you know, would would send a message directly to my mailbox.
0: Well, Ellie Pearlman, really an inspiring story for sure. I know that you're going to continue doing amazing things because you already have. So thank you very much for your time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Roger.
0: And I will talk to you soon. Thanks a lot.